Amen. Let's get our Bibles open to John chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, the ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now to pass them out. Uh, well, Netflix has a new star, and uh, her name is Marie Kondo, and uh, she's, a, she's really a lovely person. Uh, Linton and I have watched a couple of episodes of her show called Tidying Up, and uh, she basically just goes uh, into people's homes and helps them uh, declutter. And uh, the before and after photos aren't that striking, uh, but, but it's just sort of this, she has different techniques for, for folding, you know, socks and shirts and organizing things, and she has this whole funny thing about s- items that spark joy when you, when you hold them, and, and uh, spiritually speaking, some of us came here today thinking, you know what, I'm going to come to church because I just kind of need like, I just need like a, a Marie Kondo, I just, need, I just need a little bit of tidying up. Mostly my life is good, and all I need are just a couple of tweaks, a couple of little adjustments to make things more effective or better. I'm hoping to come to church, maybe learn a bit of it from Jesus about how to already improve my awesome life. You see, but here's the thing. If Marie Kondo were to open up a, uh, a, a closet and, and discover that there was a vermin uh, infestation in that closet, you know, how you fold your socks isn't going to help with that. If she were to go down into a basement and discover that there's water and the foundation is damaged, you know, like Tupperware containers aren't going aren't to help with that. If, if there's mold all in the drywall, then, then a, a tidy, you need more than tidying. And then spiritually speaking, Jesus didn't just come to teach us some life lessons, to tell some parables and stories and give us some rules to follow, just to kind of tidy up our life a little bit. No, Jesus didn't come to tidy up. He came with sticks of dynamite and a wrecking ball and said, this whole thing needs to come down and we need to start over. And that's, that's Jesus' approach to quote-unquote, improving our life. He didn't come to simply improve our life or to tidy things up. He came, he said, we need to bring this down to the ground and build it up again. And the phrase that he used time and time again was this idea of being born again. And that's what we're going to see today in John chapter 3, that Jesus makes it clear in his conversation with Nicodemus, as he didn't just give Nicodemus a couple of tips to improve his life. No, he told him that his life needed a complete restart. Uh, Pastor Marvin uh, closed off chapter 2 for us uh, last week in his excellent message. At the end of chapter 2, talking about Jesus and his discernment, says that he needed no one to bear witness about man because he himself knew what was in man. And then in chapter 3, verse 1 begins with the phrase, now there was a man. So here's one such man. This is the kind of man that, that John was talking about, that Jesus knew what was going on inside each and every heart. So let's take a look at John chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher in Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Heavenly Father, God, this is your word. And Father, this is a, 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 a description of a conversation that happened between Nicodemus and Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, that we would experience you having a conversation with us, Lord. Whatever uh, excuses, whatever questions, whatever hesitancies, hesitancies we might have and fully embracing what you've intended for our lives and being fully born again and walking in newness of life, Lord, I pray that you would answer all of those questions, Lord, and that you would respond to all of those excuses, that you would be patient with all of those hesitancies and that you would speak so clearly and so powerfully. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you may have noticed as we are reading the passage um, uh, just now that at three different times, Jesus says, truly, truly. Do you see that in in verse 3? He says, truly, truly. And then verse 5, and he says it again in verse 3. The Greek there, he's saying, amen, amen. Uh, Amen simply means yes. It, it, it is true. When we say amen at the end of our uh, prayers, we're, we're saying, yeah, everything that I just said is, is, is true. And Lord, may you, make it, may you make it so. And Jesus gives these three double amen statements, these truly, truly statements. And that's going to form our, sort of our outline for the conversation. Uh, it begins as a dialogue, sort of going back and forth, and it kind of ends as a, as a monologue where Jesus just flat out uh, begins to, uh, to teach Nicodemus what it means uh, to be born again and, and the implications that are there. In verse 1, we're introduced to Nicodemus. It says that he was a Pharisee. Uh, the, the Pharisees were the ones who were, who were keeping it real. The Sadducees, they were the sellouts. Uh, They were in cahoots with the occupying Roman Empire and cooperating with the enemy. But the Pharisees, they were woke, okay? They they understood what was going on. And they understood the oppression that was taking place. And they weren't going to stand for it. And so they were the ones who were loyal to the Bible and followed and obeyed. The Sadducees compromised all over the place and for the sake of political power. But the Pharisees were a smaller minority that were, that were keeping it real, that were trying to follow God's word. And it says that he, was, that he was a ruler of the Jews. And so he was, again, he was part of this minority group known as the Pharisees, but he was also a member of the Sanhedrin, which was dominated by the sellout Sadducees. But 
Nicodemus finds himself in a very influential position. He's, in, he's a highly respected member of the Pharisee group, known for integrity and conviction and truth and knowledge of God's word. And yet he was also influential politically because he sat on the Sanhedrin. So you sort of picture Nicodemus walking into the, uh, the, the church today. He would, be, uh, he would be someone that all of us would, would sort of flock to. He came from a good family. He went to the right schools. He was powerful and popular and prosperous and, and respected. His words had weight. And so it was a big deal for Nicodemus to come to Jesus. The name Nicodemus means conqueror of the peoples. And just about everything in Nicodemus' life, he would have conquered. Uh, academically conquered. Socially, he had conquered. Financially, he had conquered. Politically, he had conquered. He had arrived. He had everything. And he begins really by flattering Jesus. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And, and Nicodemus is right. I mean, every single person on planet Earth has to come to grips or has to make a conclusion about who is Jesus. And Nicodemus could not deny the signs, the miracles that Jesus was, that Jesus was doing at that time. And if you're here today and you're exploring Jesus or you're, you're supporting someone who has who's recently chosen to follow Jesus and so you're just sort of along for the ride, one of the questions that you're going to have to answer is, How are you going to respond to the fact that Jesus performed miracles? That even secular historians writing at the time of Christ documented that he was a miracle worker. And so you've got to have an answer to that. You've got to respond to that. It's not just mythology that was passed down and sort of like this broken telephone thing where Jesus did basically nothing but then it got far exaggerated over time. That wasn't what happened. I mean, these these accounts were written far uh, far too recently or far too close to, uh, to the time when Jesus actually performed these, these kinds of miracles. So he comes and he flatters Jesus. And you would expect, listen, if someone as influential as Nicodemus chose to come and talk to Jesus, you would think that Jesus would so, you know, like return the compliment. Well, it's a real honor to have someone like you here, Nicodemus, man. I mean, you're so influential in the community. You're so well-educated. This is really, I'm just, I'm just a carpenter from, from Nazareth, and you're this... You're this this highly influential person in the realm of academia and in the realm of politics, but that's not what Jesus does. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, here's the first truly, truly. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And today we're going to see three things that we need to understand about being born again or being reborn. Here's the first one, that rebirth is required for entrance into the kingdom. Rebirth is required for entrance into the kingdom. And so for Nicodemus to hear this idea that that he needed to be born again would have been so shocking to him because he was born a Jew. He He was Jewish. He was a descendant of Abraham. He was part of the chosen people of God. Well, His birth meant that he was automatically qualified to join into the kingdom of God. Let alone the fact that he was a Pharisee and had all of these other qualifications. So this would have been highly shocking for Jesus to speak to Nicodemus and say, you know what, you need to totally restart. I know you think that you've conquered in all the different areas of your life, but unless you're born again, you're going to miss out on seeing 
the kingdom of God. Because rebirth is an absolute requirement. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, Jesus is like, you must be at least this high to ride. You've got to be above. You've got to be higher, more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. But the question is, who's more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, humanly speaking? No one. And yet Jesus says, no, no, sorry, Nicodemus, you've got to, you need to restart. You do not qualify. You do not meet the prerequisites to enter into the kingdom of God. That would have been utterly shocking for Nicodemus to hear. And maybe that's shocking for you to hear too. Maybe you think, well, because you're a good person that God is somehow going to welcome you into heaven at the end of your life or at the end of the age. But listen, loved ones, being a good person is not good enough. Picture uh, morality and spirituality like a, like, a, like a jumping contest, okay? And, and uh, some of us here, you know, you might have big ups, you know, someone like LeBron James, I saw this photo, like, look how high in the air he is there. That is a 10-foot basket. It's like at his nose. I'm sorry if you're a Heat fan or a Cavalier fan, or, or uh, I'm also sorry if you're a Laker fan, because that's not really working out super well either. But he's really high. And listen, if the standard were a 10-foot rim, then yeah, there would be some people who would say, yeah, you win, okay? You're a higher jumper. You win the slam dunk contest. You're the winner. You have achieved it. You're good enough. You're strong enough. You've done it. But that's if the standard is a 10-foot basket. What if it's a 200-foot skyscraper? Then it doesn't really matter if you can jump 40 inches or 4 inches, does it? Because we're all so far from the goal. What if the standard were to jump to the moon? You know, 384, 400,000 kilometers away. I mean, no one could jump that high. And even if we could jump that high, we'd all die up there. Because we can't survive in that atmosphere. Listen, God's standard for us is so high. That the person who seems so righteous, they're still so far away. And even if they could get into the presence of the kingdom of heaven, they would never survive there. Because God is so holy and so perfect. God says in Isaiah 55, 9, as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. God's, God's judging on a different standard than simply human judgment. Your life doesn't just need a couple of tweaks. You don't just need to tidy things up. You cannot reach God's standard. That's what Jesus is trying to get across here. Being born again is not optional. Because getting to heaven is impossible without it. You, you, Jesus says, unless one is born again... He cannot see the kingdom of God. It is impossible. Nicodemus in verse 4 
says Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and, and be born? So Nicodemus is taking what Jesus is saying quite, quite literally here. That phrase, uh, born again, back in verse 3, there's a footnote in my Bible. And if you follow the footnote down to the bottom of, if you have an ESV Bible, you probably have the same footnote. It says that that phrase, born again, could also be born from above. And that the Greek is purposely ambiguous and can mean both again and from above. Jesus wasn't merely talking about being born again in a physical sense. It's being born again, but that being born again means being born from above. That's the second thing that we need to understand about being born again that's absolutely vital, is that rebirth is the result of the work of the Spirit. It's the result of the work of the Spirit. We cannot make ourselves born again. Here's Jesus' second truly, truly statement, verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus explains, how does being born again and born from above, how does it work? Well, it works by the Spirit. It says, unless someone is born by water and the Spirit. Now, some people misunderstand this passage to mean that there is sort of, there's a born of water, and that's one thing, and then there's born of Spirit, that's another thing. Some people think that, you know, um, uh, born of water is referring to your physical birth, and then you've got your physical birth, but then you need to have a, a, a spiritual birth. Other people relate it to baptism is like being born of water, but the, the, the grammar here. It doesn't come across, across perfectly clear in English, but that phrase being born of water and spirit, it's referring to one birth. And it's, and it's the same birth as being born again. He's not saying that there's one kind of birth that's of water and that there's one kind of birth that's of the spirit. He's saying, no, there is one born again experience that needs to happen in every person's life. And that, and that moment can be described as water and spirit. It's the same event. And Jesus is really hearkening back to a, a passage in Ezekiel. So here's John chapter 3, verse 5. He says, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27, Jesus says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel was making a, was making a, a prophecy, a promise from God about something that he was going to do in the lives of his people. And it was, going to be, it was going to involve cleansing like water from their sin. And it was going to involve this new life infused by His Spirit. Water and the Spirit working together. It's the same event. Born of water and the Spirit. It's the same event. It's all over the Old Testament. Take a look at these passages. Joel chapter 2. I will pour out like water. I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Isaiah 32, 15, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. Isaiah 44, verse 3, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring. Are you following me? 
This idea of the spirit and water, it goes together. These aren't two separate events. It's one event. Jesus carries on in the New Testament in John chapter 7, a passage we'll study later on. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me has the scripture, the scripture. What scripture? Ezekiel 36, Joel chapter 2, Isaiah 34, all those scriptures we just talked about. As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit. To be born of water and the Spirit is the same event. Titus 3.5, the Apostle Paul picking up on this. He said, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing, there's water, of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. When the, when the Bible describes the work of the Holy Spirit, one of the metaphors that's so often used, Old Testament and New Testament, is the metaphor of water. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is looking at Nicodemus and saying, you might think that you're squeaky clean and moral and ethical and a good person, but you need to be cleansed by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is sin in your heart, Nicodemus, that you need to be forgiven from and you need to be transformed. Everything might look good on the outside, but there is death on the inside. You need a rebirth and that birth can only happen as a result of the work of of the Spirit. He goes on in, in verse 6, he says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He's saying, Like begets like. Fleshly human effort can only accomplish human, uh, human accomplishments. But to enter the kingdom of God is a spiritual thing, and so you cannot. By your own power, by your own might, by your own wisdom, by your own commitment, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God because that's just fleshly. But Jesus is talking about something of the Spirit. It must happen of the Spirit. Verse 7 says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus uses the metaphor of water, now he's using a metaphor of wind. And he uses wind to describe how the Spirit works. Now there's a pretty important play on words that's happening here too, because the word for Spirit and the word for wind in both Hebrew and Greek is the same word. So you could translate it, the ESV again has a footnote in verse 8. It could say, the Spirit blows where it wishes. Jesus is saying, listen, to be born again, it's not something that you can bring about yourself. It's the Spirit of God that does it. Think about the wind. You can't see wind, but you can feel it, can't you? You can't control wind but you know when it's there. You can hear it. You can see its effects. I remember when I used to go out on a day like, like today where the wind is blowing and feel it blowing in my hair. I remember those days. <laughs> you feel the effects. You see the effects. No one can see the wind, but you can see what it's doing. You can hear it whistling through its airs. I'm a lot more, a lot more aerodynamic now to hear the wind blowing by my ears. It's the work of the Spirit. Meryl C. Tenney in his excellent commentary on the Gospel of John says that the work of the Spirit, just like wind, is unexplainable, 
unpredictable, but undeniable. You, you, you drive down the street, you know, on recycling day and there's been a windstorm. It's undeniable that there was wind that day. Right? All the bins are scattered all over everywhere. There's branches down and you, you, you know for the, the winds did this. No one saw the actual wind, but you can see the effects of the wind, can't you? Rebirth is a result of the work of the Spirit. Nicodemus just still doesn't, still doesn't get it. His paradigm is, is shifting here. His whole worldview of works righteousness is, is crumbling at its, at its foundation. And so he, he desperately, this is the last time we hear from Nicodemus in verse 9, he says, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus says to him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? I shared with you guys before that before I became a pastor and was teaching the Bible, I was actually I was a high school teacher. And uh, I remember when I first started teaching, I was given a couple courses that I, you know, I didn't do during my undergrad. I was supposed to teach them. And I, some of these courses, I hadn't, need, I hadn't even taken these courses in high school. And now I was teaching them. And, uh, you know, you sometimes joke about your teacher being like one page ahead of you in the textbook. Like, that was me. And I remember sometimes these, these students would, would sometimes just look at me and just sort of like tilt their head when they saw me trying to struggle through some of the content. And they'd just be sort of be like, aren't you the teacher? <laughs> and so Jesus goes to Nicodemus and, and, and he, sa he says, no, notice we all learned about the importance of the definite article when we were studying John chapter 1. Jesus doesn't say, are you a teacher he says, are you the teacher? This is, I, I'm not making this up about how influential Nicodemus was at the time. He was well known as an authority on the Old Testament scriptures and on how to live your life. He was sought after. He was the, the plenary speaker at conferences. He was writing books. He had thousands of followers on so He was so well known. He was the teacher. He was the authority on these matters. And Jesus says, you're the teacher. And this is new to you. Jesus says, listen, apart from what I just unpacked, apart from what I just shared from you out of the book of Ezekiel, you, you didn't see this coming, this need to be born again? This need for new life? Your familiarity with the Old Testament Torah and the law and your own failure to obey it, Nicodemus, didn't you see this coming? Reading the Old Testament and learning about the sacrificial system and how these animals were being slaughtered. Didn't you realize that the wages of sin is death? And that our only hope for eternal life is to have new life infused in us by the Spirit? Are you a teacher in Israel and you don't yet understand these things? You see, Jesus wasn't coming to introduce new content he was, he was continuing on what had already been revealed in the Old Testament, that there was this need for new life and that God was going to do it. And so he asked him, aren't you the teacher? And then here's the third, truly, truly, in verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
We speak of what we know and bear witness about what we have seen, but you do not believe our testimony. Jesus talking about him and his disciples. Listen, we're just telling you what we know. And we're, we're sharing our testimony about, about who God is and, and who I am. And he says, but you do not believe. So much for Nicodemus' flattery at the beginning. Jesus, who knows what's in every man knew what was in Nicodemus. He did not believe. And remember, believe is 98 times in the, um, in the gospel of John, the most important word, the whole reason why the gospel was written is so that people would read these words and believe as a result. And he looks at Nicodemus at this point in time and says, you do not believe. Verse 12, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He said, I've told you, I've talked to you about childbirth, I talked to you about water. I'm talking to you about wind, earthly things, and yet you don't believe. And he says, I want to tell you about heavenly things. Verse 13, no one has ever ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is the term Jesus uses to describe himself. And he says, listen, no one's ever ascended and descended. Yeah, sure, uh, uh, Enoch and, and Elijah, some of these people were carried up into heaven or, or taken away. But they never came back and said, well, here's the way to get up there. And Jesus says, I came from there. I'm telling you, unless you're born again, you're not getting in. And I'm speaking to you with authority. You see, in our present day of, you know, religious pluralism. People think about the spiritual life and a spiritual journey and life after this life like a big mountain. And, you know, Muslims go up this way up the mountain and Buddhists go up this way up the mountain and Christians go up this way up the mountain. There's multiple ways, but everyone's going up the mountain. Jesus, Jesus blows all that out of the water. He says, I've, been, I've come from the top. There is only one way to the top. No one knows the way but me, and no one gets to the way but through me. And he makes it, he makes it crystal. He says, I've come from there. And I am telling you, you must be born again. And it's a result of the work of the Spirit. And then lastly, it's recognizing our need for a Savior recognizing our need for a Savior. Jesus comes and he says, you can't get there on your own. You need me to get there. I came to bring you there. And then in verse 14 and 15, so this is John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Now, what comes after John 3, verse 14 and 15? John 3, 16. Okay, so one of the most familiar, most memorized, most understood, most preached verses in all of the Bible is John 3.16. But listen to the context. Listen to what comes right before John 3.16. Here's John 3.14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What on earth is that saying? This is two verses away from the most popular verse in the whole world. Everyone knows John 3.16. But in order to properly understand the weight of what Jesus 
is communicating in John 3, 16, we need to understand what is going on in verse 14 and 15. We have to read the Bible in its context, don't we? And so Jesus here is referring to really an obscure story. It wouldn't have been obscure to Nicodemus because he was a Pharisee. But a story in Numbers chapter 21. So I'm going to do something that you don't hear in a lot of churches. I'm going to say, turn in your Bibles to the book of Numbers. Okay? Numbers chapter 21. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers. Numbers tells the story of the people of Israel wandering through the wilderness. Exodus has them being rescued from slavery in the land of Egypt. And then Leviticus is sort of the instruction manual for using the tabernacle, which was God's symbolic presence among the people. And then in the book of Numbers, it begins with a list of numbers, all the people that, that, that were encamped and that were set free from Egypt and were wandering around. It begins with numbers, but... But it, it's this beautiful narrative, this compelling story of the people making their way to the promised land. In Numbers chapter 21, I'm going to start at verse 4. It says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So is there no food or is there food? Sounds like a teenager, you know, looking in the fridge. The fridge is full. There's nothing to eat. This, this worthless food that they're referring to here, remember, this is, this is manna. This is frosted flakes appearing on the ground every single morning. Miraculously in the middle of the desert. Not having to plant. Not having to harvest. It was just an, a, a meal provided for them every single day. And then double provided so that they could rest on the Sabbath, and they call, they first they say they have no food, and then they call this food worthless food. Think about, think about the lack of thankfulness. Romans chapter 1 describes all of us and, and, and turning away from God, and it says, it says they refuse to give thanks. That's all of us. They also say they have no water. If you look back at Numbers chapter 20, that was where water came out of the rock. I think God's got the water thing figured out. All right? He, he made water come out. That's not where water comes from. He had miraculously provided food for them, miraculously provided water for them. And look at, look at what they accuse God of. And go back to verse 5. They spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? You know, I take my, my family on a, on, a, on a family adventure or a little trip, and they start to complain about how, how, how it's going in the backseat. Like, me as a father, I'm like, I'll turn this car around. <laughs> Do you realize what they're saying about God here? They're saying they brought them out of Egypt 
to die in the wilderness. They are accusing God of mass genocide of their entire nation. It's what they're saying, that their loving, providing, miraculously powerful God was intending to do. Listen, they got it all wrong, didn't they? And if we're going to, listen, if we're going to truly understand John 3.16, if we're going to truly understand what it means to, to be born again, you got to understand, it's not just about theology, it's also about anthropology. Theology is the study of God. Anthropology is the study of humankind and human nature. We can laugh about how the Israelites are responding here. How, how would I do in the wilderness? How would you do? How would Nicodemus do? Jesus is trying to show to Nicodemus, listen, look, picture yourself there. You might think you're all righteous and educated and people respect you and that you've got it all together and you're the conqueror or whatever. But put yourself in that story. And remember, what they're saying here, it's very similar to, to, to Adam and Eve. Right? They're, they could eat from any fruit in the garden, and yet they have it in their mind. Satan plants this idea that God's not good, and he's holding back on them. And why can't they eat that one fruit? And surely you won't die. See, if we're truly going to understand theology and who God is, we need to understand anthropology and who we are and how we're sinful to the core, totally depraved, ungrateful, rebellious, completely delusional about what is actually going on. God had been leading them with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. He parted the Red Sea. He provided manna, water from the rock, defeated the Amalekites. And yet they say that he brought them out there to kill them. It's absurd. And yet all of us have turned on God in that way. So they find themselves under the wrath of God in verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. The wages of sin is death. Like the prodigal son, they come to their senses in verse 7. The, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. That needs to be in our vocabulary far more often than how we talk to God and how we talk to other people. Clearly calling sin, sin. Oh, not just a failure, not just an oversight, not just a mistake, not just a goof up or a mess up. We have sinned. They own responsibility for their sin. We have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said, Make a fiery serpent, make a symbol of death, the thing that was killing them. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. There's the mercy and the grace of God. Even though all of the people deserve to be wiped out as a result of their sin, God would be just in his judgment of them. Verse 9, so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now go back to John chapter 3 and verse 14. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Often when we think about Jesus being lifted up, we think about, you know, lifting him up in praise and worship. Lift him up. All right. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. As the pole was lifted up, Jesus, the Son of Man, it says, notice it says, he must. He must be lifted up. Remember Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. If there's any other way to let this cup pass from me. No, no, that, there's that way. Jesus couldn't opt out. He must. He must be lifted up. He must suffer and die on the cross. Why? So that like those people bit by the serpents, we could look and live. When the Holy Spirit works in someone's life and causes them to be born again, the telltale sign, the sign that the wind is blowing, the effect of the blowing, the wind of the Spirit in someone's life is that they see their own sin and they see their need for a Savior. If you're, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if right now you are getting a sense of your own sin, things that you've done, things that you've said, things that you've thought, and you realize that just like those people in the wilderness, you are under the condemnation of God. You, that's the Spirit working, showing you your own sin. The next thing the Spirit wants to show you is your Savior, suffering and dying on the cross, bearing the wrath of God as your substitute, standing in your place. If you're, if you're going to understand what it means to be born again, listen, it's not just theology, it's anthropology. And if your anthropology, if your understanding of human nature is that human beings are pretty much good, then the cross, there's, the cross makes no sense. you got to make up your whole, a whole new understanding of who Jesus is and why he came and all of that, because certainly we don't need a cross. So if you think human beings are naturally good, if that's your anthropology, then you'll refuse to be born again. You'll, you'll refuse. You won't, you won't see your own sin. You won't see your need for a Savior. If you think human beings are hmm, neutral, a little bit of yin, a little bit of yang, you know, dark side of the force, light side of the force, as long as you're pretty good, well, then, then you'll look at the cross and you'll think, well, I mean, that was really nice of him, but I mean, some people might need that, but I don't think I do. If that's your anthropology, that human beings are neutral, then you won't think you need the cross either. But listen, if your anthropology is a Numbers 21 anthropology. If it's a biblical anthropology that says, no, we are totally depraved, sinful to the core, rebels who are under the condemnation of God, not just guilty feelings, but actually legally guilty and responsible for our thoughts, words, and actions. Then we look to the cross and we marvel and we worship our Savior. That's a sign that you are born again. And listen, it doesn't just happen one time, does it? Doesn't the Spirit just kind of continually remind us, mercifully show us our sin, and then show us our Savior? Jesus warns 
about the need to be born again. And he says, listen, you've got to be born twice. There's a physical birth, but you need to be born again. And the reason why he says that there needs to be a second birth is because the Bible says that there is a second death. So there's a physical birth. All of us are here because we've had a physical birth. But there needs to be a second birth from above, a birth by the Spirit. And the reason why we need that second birth to be born again is because there will be a physical death for all of us. But the Bible says that there is a second death that's coming in a lake of fire, in a place called hell, in a place where our condemnation and the wrath of God for sin is poured out for all of eternity. And Jesus came to prepare us and to spare us from that. That's why he went to the cross to bear the punishment that all of us deserve for our sins. In light of the fact that there are, there's birth and then born again and that there's a physical death and a second death, someone once wisely said that if you are born twice, you will only die once. Because Jesus says in verse 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Then we read John 3, 16, which says, so God so loved the world. What kind of a world did he love? He loved a Numbers 21 world. He loved a rebellious, ungrateful world. He loved that world in such a way that he gave his only son to be lifted up on a cross that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, but you are feeling that sense of an understanding of your sin, and you're beginning to see that, say, that is the Spirit working in your life. You must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, one of the signs that you are filled with the Spirit is this repeated sense and understanding of the seriousness and the weight of our own sin. But we don't stay there. We see the Savior. We don't just, we don't just, we don't experience condemnation anymore. That's the work of the enemy. The work of the Spirit is to bring conviction to show us our Savior. So let's bow our heads together. Let's think about right now personally our own Sin, our own actions, sins of omission, sins of commission. Things that we've said, things that we've thought, things that we've done. And so Heavenly Father, we come to you right now by your spirit and in the name of your son. And Lord, I know that there are many here right now who are born again. Who have experienced that new birth, that new life. But God, I know that there are some people right now who have not yet been born again, who have not yet made that decision to trust in you for the forgiveness of sins. God, I pray that your spirit would infiltrate their lives and that by the power of the spirit, they would see their need of a savior and that they would look to him and that they would receive forgiveness and that they would receive the gift of eternal life. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.